This podcast is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers. All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words. Your weekly news briefing with Mark Pownall and Mark Byer. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Pownall and I'm joined by Mark Byer. Coming up in this podcast, Perth Mint, Palmer versus Citic, interest rates, CBD construction, International Women's Day, land developers, board fees, junior miners, payroll tax and burger joints. Well, first up, Mark, in that quite long list, the Perth Mint's image problem seemingly spiralled out of control this week. How bad is it? Not as bad as you might think from some of the headlines that uh, have appeared over the week. So this started with they broadcast on Four Corners on Monday night. Uh, They did a piece which looked at an issue that the Perth Minters had with some of their customers in China. In fact, their biggest customer, uh, the Shanghai Gold Exchange, Mm. all to do with the quality of the gold bars that get produced at the Perth Mint. And just for a little bit of context for the readers that might not be familiar, the Perth Mint, owned by the state government, basically buys all of the gold that's mined in Australia um, and a considerable amount that's mined in other countries. Like Papua New Guinea. Like Papua New Guinea and elsewhere. And refines that gold. So it takes the gold doré and then turns it into high-quality gold bars. Mm. And there's a minimum specification. A one-kilo gold bar has to have 99.99% gold to meet the industry specifications. Yeah. Every gold bar sold by the Perth Mint has met that standard. But that residual amount, the 0.01%, that comprises uh, silver, copper, iron, I think, and and perhaps other things, but mostly silver and copper. Within that, there's a maximum amount of silver that the Shanghai Gold Exchange will accept. Mm. And they found some gold bars that had a bit too much silver in them. Yeah, They still had the 99.99% gold, but a bit too much silver in that residual amount. And just to be clear, that's because the Perth Mint has probably found at times, I'm assuming that they've had a little more gold than 0.99%. So they've taken a little bit of gold out and put a bit of silver in to try and maximise the value, I suppose, from their perspective, and to nurse that percentage to uh, as close to 0.99% as they can get, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So their their view is that the customer is paying for something with that 0.99% gold content. Yeah. And if it's got more gold in it than that, then you're giving away some free gold to your customer. Yeah. Uh, Now, the Mint says to us, now this practice, which has a a very unfortunate name, doping. Mm. Now... Goodness knows who thought of that name for it. Um, The other phrase that they're now talking about is alloying. which um, Sounds way more sophisticated and professional. (laughs) But the Perth Mint insists that this is generally accepted practice in the industry, that every refinery does this, um, that they all meet that 99.99% specification and every gold bar has a little bit of other things in it, like silver and copper. Yeah. Now, in this case... uh, the target they'd set was 99.992%. In light of this problem that they've had, and look, uh, they've admitted 
they messed up. They've admitted this should not have happened. They've upset their customers. They've not delivered what their customers were expecting. Uh, yeah. ex- expecting. They've now lifted the benchmark to... The gold standard. The gold standard is... Lots of numbers here, but last one, I think, 99.996%. Okay. So they've, they've given themselves a little bit more comfort zone that if they don't get it quite right, they're still going to be the real deal and acceptable to their customers. And fair enough. I mean, I understand that, that, you know, if you're the Perth Mint, then really what you're selling is purity of gold beyond any other thing. And so the reputation matters, which is why these headlines are so damaging, I suppose. And the fact that they come on top of a whole bunch of other issues. Well, I think the other issues were the issue, weren't they? And this was just like a side issue made to, I don't know, cause even more consternation. Yeah, I mean, look, Austrac is still undertaking inquiries yeah. uh, because the Perth Mint has previously disclosed they failed to comply with their anti-money laundering uh, requirements in terms of keeping track of who's walking into the Mint and buying gold bars and where the money's coming from. Uh, there's a big audit that's still underway in terms of reviewing their practices. Um, and that example, that you mentioned Papua New Guinea, bef- New Guinea before. So they've been buying gold from you know, what we call conflict gold, yeah. uh, from someone who had a criminal past. So you know, a bunch of issues there. Uh, Jason Waters, he was brought in about a year ago as the new chief executive, and he's the guy given the task of trying to clean it up. Um, He said that they've got new heads for their refinery, for their treasury, for their risk and compliance areas. They're employing more people for their um, know-your-customer checks. So, yeah, there's an acknowledgement on the part of the Perth Mint that they've not been doing their job properly. Sure. But it did seem to me, you know, and I guess let's say this blew up because it was four corners on Monday, that it it seemed to me that the issue was around you know, who was buying the gold and the Oztrack stuff that you're talking about rather than the purity of the gold, which, you know, we get into that sort of granular discussion around that, but in fact that felt like a, a much lesser issue by comparison. Is it just the cumulative effect of all this? Uh, look, I think so. Um, the, um, I mean, you know, the other example that was raised, there was the example of an ex-bikey who was apparently walking in there and buying gold bars. Yeah. Well, I thought that's the same thing, right? And not getting checked out <laughs> properly. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it is the cumulative effect. Um, there was a, people that have been running the Mint for a long period of time, um, and, and now there's this new, new team there in charge of it and trying to lift their game. And, of course, there's now the politics of it mm. because, of course, it's government-owned. Uh, the Premier, Mark McGowan, was the responsible minister for several years up to 2021. Then he handed over to Mines Minister Bill Johnson. Um, so you know, the opposition has um, made the most of this opportunity and saying, well, where was the minister? Mm. Um, now, my view is uh, ministers might have been a bit more involved. And I also think the board, you know, Led by Sam Walsh, Sam's been chair for four years. Uh, you know, I think there's a, I think it's legitimate to people for people to ask questions. Yeah, about whether you know, the board and the the state as shareholder, you know, could and should I think have been asking more questions. But what about the most? I mean, I think the biggest sort of hmm, is it an allegation? I'm not quite sure. The biggest thing that come from this was that the possibility that some hundreds of tonnes of gold might have to be re-bought back 
at the cost of billions of dollars, which, you know, was like some sort of risk to the state. Now, I can't imagine that's really a plausible possibility, but a lot was made of that possibility. Uh, look, you're right, and perhaps I should have addressed that up front. Um, it's not something I attach much weight to because I don't think it's a credible claim. No. The suggestion that we'd have to buy back $9 billion worth of gold from the Chinese customers. To what? Uh, refine it and, and get it to back back to some slight, slightly different thing and send it back again. I mean, as the Mint said, every gold bar they've sold met the gold content standard. Yeah. It was just that, that residual amount. So not a, not a trifling issue, but not, a, not as dramatic as some of the headlines would have us believe. Yeah. Um, and as certainly from what I've seen, uh, no suggestion that they're going to have to buy back the gold bars. Nevertheless, Mark, you know, these headlines sit around there, you know, on the internet forever and a day. And if you're selling, if you're the Perth Mint and they do sell stuff online and they sell retail things, and still when I say retail, it's still an investment product, uh, you know, coins, commemorative things and gold ingots. I mean, it's still not a great thing to have there, is it? Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. And and I don't think uh, Jason Waters, as the new chief executive, would shy away from that. Mm. You know, he admits um, they got it wrong, that the the errors they made in the refining process should not have happened. Um, they've, you know, they've changed people, they've changed their procedures, they've uh, adjusted their standards. Um, he recognises they need to do act seriously on this. Mm. And, you know, we've still got reports from Austrac to come, we've got the audit results to come through. So, you know, there's a way to go uh, before we can say Perth Mint is humming smoothly as it should. Mm. Well, a fun job for Jason Waters to have taken over. Uh, Mark, moving on, uh, Queensland politician Clive Palmer has had a big court win against Citic Pacific. That's an uh, interesting way to introduce him. <laughs> well, that's what he sort of spends his day doing, doesn't it? Um, and it's what he spends his money on yeah. uh, to a considerable degree and money that Clive Palmer makes in a big way from Cidic Pacific. Uh, now, I think most listeners would be aware uh, Clive Palmer is a serial litigant, um, has all sorts of disputes with state government and with uh, Cidic Pacific. Now, he's got a private company, Mineralogy. They pegged some tenements up in the Pilbara some 20 or more years ago, uh, rich with magnetite ore, and then he did the deal about 15 years ago with Citic. They said, we want to mine your tenements. He said, fine, let's do a deal. And uh, that deal has come back to haunt Citic ever since. Um, they've got to a point where the company wants access to additional land, you know, land that he controls through his tenements, um, so that they can continue and expand their operations and they've not been able to do a deal mm. now i think for a lot of us sitting on the outside we're thinking oh look this is just clive being difficult but chief justice ken martin has in fact come out and given clive palmer a big win in his latest ruling and Cidic might have to fork out even more money if they want to resolve this one uh, he described Cidic's original request for additional tenure as unduly extravagant and not reasonable. Um, he said it's part of this seemingly never-ending litigation war between the two parties. Uh, but he said, you know, they both parties behave in a very uncommercial manner. 
um, that could damage both their interests longer term if they don't sort it out. Mm. Um, in this particular case, the question was, did the company really need those additional tenements? Um, Justice Kenneth Martin accepted that that would be optimal or desirable for Citic to have them, but he said it did not meet the higher threshold of being essential, necessary or critical to support their operation, which seems a pretty high threshold to me, but nonetheless, that was the interpretation the Chief Justice put on it. Yep. But then he went another level and said, look, even if they met that higher threshold, you still got to do a commercial deal. Yeah. They went to Clive Palmer and said, we're not going to pay you anything for this. We think you should just supply the extra tenements. Clive said, uh-uh, you've got to pay me. And he actually proposed a number, $750 million. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, they described that as a ransom demand. And one the, the core reason why they weren't proposing their own payment was the amount they've already paid him. Uh, now, the numbers that were documented in the court judgment come to about $2.5 billion. There were some upfront payments, and then there are annual royalties. Those annual royalties are about $450 million. So it's just extraordinary amounts of money that he's sort of pulling out of this project year after year. Yeah. And a project that's never really made um, any sort of meaningful profit, given mm. the huge investment Citic had to make in the first place. Mark, I mean, can you think of any other kind of example of this kind of relationship? I mean, I've never seen anything like it that, that I can remember. You know, this sort of... You do see it, I suppose, with landlords and tenants in commercial property, but not ongoing like this, where so, two people are sort of captive in a way, you know, because, because of that investment. City can't walk away. Yeah, look, they absolutely um, need... Um to be in partnership with Clive Palmer because yeah. they need access to the tenements and they will need more in future. You've got to say, Siddick was very commercially naive when they signed that deal in the first place and Clive Palmer was very savvy yep. and he's been reaping the benefits ever since. Yeah, And it was interesting too, Justice Martin talked about this figure of $750 million which Siddiq described as a ransom demand, um, he said, look, uh, this was clearly an ambit claim. Um, he talked about Clive making it, having a bit of, um, I can't see the words in front of me at the moment, but nonetheless, he said that given the amount that's been invested by Siddiq in the project, he said that's not an unreasonable starting point for discussions. Mm. So sit down and have some serious commercial discussions here and work out a deal. Yeah. Um, now, Cidic, they've sort of said, you know, there are some parts of the judgment that they see as okay for them, um, but clearly it's a big win for Clive. Um, you know, they're saying clearly the situation they're in is not operationally or financially optimal. I think that's a uh, great understatement. Um, but they need to, you know, this is someone they've been in caught with for the last 10 years yeah. fighting tooth and nail they need to work out a way of sitting down and talking yeah yeah I can't imagine how much the lawyers have earned out of it over those years it'd be extraordinary as well and you know this is one of WA's biggest resources projects yeah you know it's a major employer very big operation up there yeah I know it's incredible all right thanks Mark now uh, back to you know 
the, the land of sort of normality. Uh, there was another rate rise this week. Uh, are we seeing signals of a change in the RBA's stance? Uh, we absolutely are. And it's come surprisingly quickly. It was only uh, a month ago that the Reserve Bank was talking about uh, the Governor, Philip Lowe, was sort of hammering the message that inflation was still a risk, more interest rate increases were needed, um, and that got everyone quite alarmed at the, the tone of his comments. Yep. Uh, here we are a month later, and there's been a, a shift. Um, so the RBA, as expected, did lift rates for a tenth time, another 0.25%. Uh, that's the official cash rate. But yeah, all the focus is on, okay, where to from here? Um, and the markets have really adjusted their thinking. Um, most people thought there'd be at least another two increases in the official cash rate, another 50 basis points. Some people had thought even more than that. Um, now the thinking is maybe one more increase, mm-hmm. possibly no more. Yeah, right. Um, over the past month, when people have stopped and reflected, they've seen a whole range of economic data that suggests, oh, actually, maybe the economy wasn't cranking as strongly as we thought. Um, and the latest inflation reading suggests that it's peaked. That's certainly the language that the Reserve Bank is now using. Um, so they're still leaving open this possibility of further increases. Um, but they've been much less specific about the timing and the quantity. You know, it's much more a case of, it was a case of how much. Mm. Now it's a case of, well, maybe, and we're not quite sure when. Yeah. So very encouraging um, you know, for anyone out there with a home loan or um, other debts that they need to service. So things that we're all going to have a look at over the next month, and this is coming from uh, the Reserve Bank Governor, uh, the latest labour force figures when they come out to show the unemployment rate, uh, the retail trade data, uh, the latest inflation figures. And the fourth one I found interesting, the NAB business survey, which you obviously attach as considerable weight to. Yeah, right, um, which is a confidence survey. Yeah, yeah. But I would think the inflation number is the one. I mean, that's the one that the last couple of times when it's surprised people on the upside, it's been really that, uh-oh, we're back in for more interest rate rises, aren't we? So that's kind of the key, isn't it? Um, well, I mean, I know it's not yeah, the only one you're yes referencing no. others. But. I mean, I, I think this is one of the points, though, that in the past it was all about the inflation number. Um, and now the Reserve Bank is saying, well, actually, inflation's looking okay and let's look at these other indicators as, as, indicators as well. Right, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. But in the end, that they are indicators of the potential for inflation in in the end, aren't they? Well, because they're, they're all connected. Yeah, because yeah, that's the yeah. ultimate aim of the RBA, really, to tame inflation. Yeah. Right. Um, and look, you know, the consensus view, as I mentioned before, most people still expect one more hike in rates, but, you know, some prominent economists, people like AMP Capital and HSBC, they're both coming out now saying, actually, we reckon it's time to pause. Yeah. We don't need any more. Mm. Well, you know, I kind of like, I've, as you know, we've had this discussion many times. I felt it got all overdone. But, you know, there's a bit of me that goes, well, if we're at this point, you know, don't stop. <laughs> don't stop if, you know, for political reasons. That's what I get worried about, that then it becomes a political thing where people don't want to do act because of the optics of, you know, that sort of thing. Whereas if, if inflation is what it's need to be tamed, then tame it, you know, because at the moment it 
especially in WA, it doesn't feel too bad. That's what I think. But also, just on a final point on this, when we're talking about sort of economic and financial risks, uh, look at what's happened to the Aussie dollar. Mm. Because while the RBA was talking about uh, or toning down its interest rate commentary, the US Federal Reserve came out during the week and they were surprisingly hawkish. They were saying inflation is still a problem. We need to hike rates even more in the US. Yep. Consequently, the US dollar strengthened. Aussie dollar went from about 70 cents US down to 66 cents US. So, you know, if you're in import-export trade or travelling, that's going to have an impact on you as well. Yeah, and that that drives inflation too. Yep, yep. (laughs) You know, rising cost of imports plus the, the, uh, you know, basically you get more money for your exports, both fuel rising rising prices. All right, Mark. now, it's a big development coming back to the lo- local economy. There's some big new developments set to take place in the city. What do we know about those? Yeah, look, we had two big updates during the week, um, which are both encouraging for future construction activity. Far East Consortium, they're the group that did the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and the apartment building next door to it down at Elizabeth Quay. They've got about five sites at uh, the Perth City Link site, sort of above the railway line, sort of yeah. behind RAC Arena. And they've just had development approval uh, for a 21-storey commercial tower. Yeah, right. Um, Really interesting because they've got three adjoining sites there and they all sit above where the train line goes underground into the tunnel. So they've had to do some really clever engineering and design work so that that it looks attractive, that it fits in that location, it doesn't, know, it doesn't fall over, obviously. It doesn't fall over, <laughs> yes. Um, so, look, you know, um, it'll be really fascinating to see, you know, when that starts to take shape, um, what it looks like. Um, and this is the same group that's currently building a, what, 32-storey residential tower right next door to RAC Arena. Okay. So some um, offshore money coming into the uh, Perth market in a pretty serious way. Mm. Um, and a sign of... Uh, you know, we talked all, over the years, we talked about the infrastructure projects that Colin Barnett supported um, and Perth City Link was one of them. Lots of uh, land sitting fairly vacant for quite a long time. Yes, but a, but a sign that bit by bit it's starting to uh, come to fruition. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Colin Barnett's other signature project or another one of, of several. Elizabeth um, Key. Elizabeth Key. Uh, Brookfield is a big property owner down there. Uh, they are very close to completing uh, the new Chevron headquarters. Um, you know, the building's basically done, doing final fit-out and so on. Um, so Chevron's going to be moving into that building at, I guess, number one, Elizabeth Key. Uh, the, the law firm, Herbert Smith Freehills, they'll be moving in there as well. Um, and in fact, that building is fully leased. Hmm. So it's going to be a really uh, interesting shift in the, the CBD uh, you know, there was that period where everything sort of moved up to one end yeah, of the terrace, the up west, around QV1. Yeah, the western end there, yeah. Uh, now things are sort of moving a bit back the other way. Mm. Um, Brookfield has two lots uh, right next door to that Chevron building. Uh, they've already done site works um, on what they call uh, Lot 5, I think it is. And at an event during the week, uh, Claire Tyrrell spoke to their project director, Cliff Winby, and he said they're just a few months away from starting construction on their next office building. But then next door to that, 
there's an even more ambitious plan, a 55-storey hotel, residential and office tower. And very interesting comments. He said there's lots of moving parts with that project, but if things go positively, they might get going with that one um, whilst they're still building the office tower next door. Mm. So we'll see effectively three new buildings developed in sequence um, yeah. there at Elizabeth Quay. And if you're working for Chevron or Herbert Smith Freehills, you're going to have a building site next year for the next couple of years. And now, Mark, uh, you were at our International Women's Day event. What did you hear about? Yeah, so Wednesday morning we had a breakfast. Sue Ellery, uh, Women's Interest Minister, was the speaker. Um, and then we had a panel discussion. And look, one of many events around Perth and, and more broadly for International Women's Day. Uh, Sue Ellery spoke well, talked about a few things the government's doing, including an online hub to help people lift their game in terms of getting more gender parity in their workplaces. Also talked, though, about the government using procurement as a, as a tool. Um, so basically saying, if you want to do business with government, you need to demonstrate how your business is achieving gender equality. Mm. So that's one more variable, along with so many others, price in particular. Yep. Um, but, you know, another signal there from government. But she also spoke, talked about what the government's doing with giving women more opportunities in both ju- the judiciary and appointments to board roles with government business enterprises. And she said, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but women used to make up 30-something percent of all board roles. Now they make up more than 50% hmm. in government enterprises. And certainly I've seen that when you see the individual appointments come through, um, but it was quite interesting to hear her stats on just how much that's changed. Hmm. Uh, we also had lots of other data that came out on the day from a range of industries about how they're travelling on this journey. Chamber of Minerals and Energy do a survey of their members, had about 40 members came back. The stat they came up with is that women comprised 21.5% of the workforce in mining and resources. Now, they're looking at that as a bit of a positive, um, up from 18.8% over the past 10 years. I think you could also look at those numbers and say, hmm, not a lot of movement there. Um, Yeah. yeah, You you might interpret it differently. What, 18.8%? To twenty one point five, yeah, over well, ten I, years. I guess that's uh, you know, for, it's nearly fifteen percent. Okay, yeah, if you that's do, if look at it, look at it that way. Um, so I'm, I am putting the, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm seeing the silver lining. <laughs> yeah, um, but also had some stats out from BHP. They were talking about, um, in fact, their south flank operation. Women make up 40% of the workforce. Mm. So this is you know, the biggest iron ore operation in the state. Um, and I found that quite an extraordinary number. This is you know, on-site workers. Yeah. Um, and then across BHP as a whole, they've in fact moved a lot further than, than the industry at Yeah, large. right. So I was going to say the big companies are actually shifting. Well, they've almost doubled um, to 33% um, of their workforce is women now. Yep. So that's uh, a really significant lift there. Um, so interesting to see. Um, and in fact, another event um, on, on Thursday, uh, which I facilitated on behalf of the gold mining company Goldfields, they do an annual event. And they got uh, three women up on a panel, um, three younger women, and I found it really inspiring to hear their stories. Uh, there was a young 
astrophysicist, uh, there was a young medical researcher, and there was a mine manager. All came from extraordinarily different backgrounds, um, even came from different countries. Uh, but gee, it was really uplifting to hear these stories of women succeeding, and in two of them at least, you know, in fields that you don't traditionally associate with women. Mm. So I came away from that with a very uh, positive feeling about the opportunities. Yeah. No, no. Well, look, you know, I've got a, I've got a daughter who will be entering the workplace, you know, in a career aspect in the near future, and I think it's, uh, there's lots of opportunities. Hopefully uh, it stays that way. Now, uh, our next magazine's out Monday. Uh, cover story is Land Developers. What's Claire Tyrrell found out? Yep, look, she, uh, well, Brendan Gore from Pete uh, was on the cover. And uh, he, like others, um, you get this a lot from, from people in industry, um, and maybe it's the nature of what they do. They've got to focus on the positives. Mm. Uh, so land development, of course, is very much tied with residential construction. Uh, we've seen a boom in residential construction, and now it's tapering off, and you see a similar thing in land sales. Yeah. So... The latest figures, are they've fallen by about half from where they were a year ago. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, the new reality. But people look at very strong employment in WA, a very strong economy, uh, and um, a return to growth in their population with some migration coming into the state. Um, so, look, they're still seeing some positives there. And then we've got our updated listing of um, who's who in the land developers uh, mm. with Satterley Property Group. They've been number one for a very long time. Yeah. It'll be, uh, I'll be intrigued um, if they get knocked off from number one at some point, but no sign of it happening yet. No. And look, there's a good map in that uh, feature as well, um, you know, which shows where the, the areas where the major develop, land development takes place. So I think it's quite, quite, a, gr- quite a good feature. Uh, now, Mark, you've written about board fees for charities. Yeah, look, this is something I wrote about a couple of years ago. Had lots of feedback from people about the article I wrote. So I've gone ahead and, or, or gone in and dug deep into the not-for-profit sector. Um, everything from aged care operators to disability services firms and all sorts of other charities. Just to ascertain how many of them do in fact pay fees to their board of directors. Mm. Because a lot of people will say, oh, look, everyone's doing it now. Um, and that's encouraged others to follow the supposed trend. Uh, to me, the evidence is not quite so clear. Uh, in some places, like the bigger aged care operators, um, it has become fairly common. Um, but outside that sector, um, it's not particularly common at all. Mm. Um, and some, you know, like a big operation like the Royal Flying Doctor Service, uh, chaired by Sam Walsh, who we mentioned earlier, uh, he's got no intention at all of introducing board fees. Um, and then when you do look at the ones that pay it, quite an extraordinary range in the amount that they pay. Yeah. Um, so hard to attach a lot of science to the way people approach this, um, but it's a really fascinating discussion. Um, as well as Sam Walsh, I spoke to Justin Scanlon. Uh, Justin had been the chairman of Ability WA. He's a great believer in it. And he said, look, it's not a huge amount of money relative to what these people can make in the corporate world, but his view is that fees really make a difference. Mm. You know, he's seen a, a real lift in the the commitment of people 
um, he said it's both an implicit and an explicit thing yes. that it makes a difference. So it's a really fascinating topic to explore. Mm. And I guess it depends also on the nature of that business. I mean, aged care providers, that's a, that's a competitive, you know, they're, they're not trying to make a profit, but they've, they've you know, they're not just a charity that gives out the money that comes in, if you know what I mean. Yep. And yet, you know, some big players like Amana Living, one of the biggest operators in the market, still don't pay fees to their board. Mm. Yeah, no, okay, interesting. Uh, now, just briefly, let's cover off WA's junior miners. Uh, Simone Grogan's written about that. Yeah, big focus on lithium. Um, and this the fact that we've got companies headquartered in WA exploring opportunities around the world. So lots of people looking to develop lithium in WA, uh, but some like Vulcan Energy in Europe, uh, Leo Lithium in Africa, Lake Resources in South America, um, Argosy Minerals in America. So she's spoken to a whole range of these companies and looked at the challenges that they're facing and uh, the, the merit of those different jurisdictions. Hmm. And then uh, there's a piece there on ta- payroll tax. Yeah, look, Matt McKenzie's going to be writing a fair bit about payroll tax over the next little while. Um, you know, it's sort of it's a, a sore point for a lot of businesses, so he's going to be analysing this. And I guess his opening piece is looking at the question of what can it do to meet that goal we've always had about diversifying the economy. Uh, governments tend to give subsidies to lots of businesses or industries that they want to support. Matt's explored the question of, hey, why don't we just remove an impost, cut payroll tax, mm. and what impact might that have? Yeah, well, I agree with him, but there are some obstacles to that. Uh, and then finally, there's a piece on burgers and the changing landscape. Yeah, look, Nadia Budihajo has done a good piece here. Very big industry, worth $9 billion, I think, is a figure that she came up with. That's nationally, That's right. nationally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what does that mean? Probably close no. to a billion dollars yeah, in WA. that's what you'd think. Um, and, of course, there's some of the, the big international chains here. Yeah. Uh, but she's talked to people at places like Varsity Burgers, Hood Burger, Royale's, Meat and bun, so those people who are listening who get out and about and buy a burger might be mm. familiar with all of these names. Um, old timers remember Bernie's and Fast Eddie's, yeah, yeah. She didn't mention Bernie's. I said, <laughs> I, I said, Well, you know what, it probably it disappeared before Nadia was born, but I do remember going to it, and my father talks about it as you know the place to go in the 50s and 60s, yep. Uh, the place that is now the Mount Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, and then Fast Eddie's was sort of like the kind of the next one of those, wasn't it? Late night burger, get something, uh, you know, after after hours. It was the one place that was always open. Yeah, um, a rare thing back then. But look, a big industry, lots of change. Really interesting read from Nadia about who's who in that space and what they're doing. Yeah, no, plenty of depth for. Uh, for that one. So fabulous. All right. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This podcast is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers.